I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We're continuing in our series on last of last words, the looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Uh, yesterday was opening day for the Cardinals, and today is a double header. Not at the Cardinals, though. It's here. We are, you might recall, those of you who've been around for the series, we are a week behind due to a snow day a number of weeks ago. So today is a double header, two sermons in one. I hope you brought a lunch. No, I'm, I'm trying to learn. I know I struggle anyway with tending to go long, and you wonder how am I going to do a double header here and keep it within any kind of reasonable time, and I'm not sure, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try not to be like William Henry Harrison. Some of you may not know who William Henry Harrison was, but he was inaugurated as the ninth president of the United States. On his inauguration day, March 4th, 1841, despite the fact that it was unseasonably cold in Washington and that it was a rainy day, Harrison went to the inauguration without an overcoat or a hat, and he proceeded to deliver what has turned out to be the longest inaugural address in history, uh, just under two hours in length. <laughs> a few weeks later, he caught a cold and died. Exactly one month after his inauguration, he died on April 4th. That has caused some to say of President Harrison that he said the most and did the least of any other president. And then I've heard some folks say, I debate that. So I don't know. You can. <laughs> well, as I said, we've been looking at the seven last words of Christ, which these seven sayings are really the antithesis of President Harrison. Brief sayings. But in their brevity, they are very powerful words. And they are spoken even as Jesus is in the process of accomplishing the most significant act of all time. Today here in John chapter 19, we are going to look at the fifth and sixth sayings of Christ from the cross. And then, and combine those two, and then the last saying, although John, as you'll see here when we get there, that John gives these two sayings and then, and goes right to Christ's death. There is one more saying that Luke records, and we'll see that in Luke chapter 23, uh, not next Sunday because that's the choir program, but on the following Sunday, which is Resurrection Day on Easter. We'll see that one. So we pick it up here in John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A simple phrase, actually in Greek it's simply one word. I thirst. I am thirsty. Four things we could note many more this morning, but we don't have time. So just four things I want us to note from this little statement. The first is that Jesus is in physical suffering, physical agony. 
To say that he is thirsty, I am sure, is a quite an understatement. Jesus, by most any reckoning, would be extremely dehydrated by this point. He had, you recall, the night before, he had the Last Supper in that upper room with the disciples. That was likely the last time that he had anything to drink. When dinner was over, they went, they left that room, went across through Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where you recall Jesus then went to prayer, agonizing hours of prayer, whereas the, as Luke records in that prayer that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke 22. Then, you recall, he was arrested, immediately hauled to trials, beatings that lasted all through the night from one trial to another with beatings in between time, undeniably. And then it ended, of course, in the, the scourging and then ultimately uh, to the cross. Undoubtedly, there was great loss of blood through all that, very Likely, nothing to drink. That difficult walk carrying the cross, as, or at least attempting to carry the cross through the streets of Jerusalem and then all the way to outside of the city to Golgotha, Skull Hill. Just before the soldiers were about to drive the nails through His wrists and through His feet, He was offered something to drink. Both Matthew and Mark record that. Matthew writes of this, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So the one offer of a drink that he has, Jesus refuses, not because he was not thirsty, nor was it because Jesus refused to drink wine because it might have alcohol in it. That's not it at all. You recall that he created wine from water. But he wouldn't drink it because it was mixed with gall. Gall, or as Mark calls it, myrrh, was a sedative. It had a narcotic effect. It was the one little little token of mercy that was offered to Jesus and the others, I assume, who were being crucified. Something to numb or take the edge off the pain as the spikes were driven through. But Jesus refused to drink it because He knows He must endure the full force of the punishment that lay before Him. Then, He hung for six hours on the cross. Three of those in the relenting heat of the desert sun from nine till noon. Certainly at the end of at this time, after these six hours on the cross and all that preceded, Jesus must have been extremely dehydrated through the loss of blood and all fluids. Jesus, while He, he has so far remained silent about His physical sufferings, but this just cracks the window open a little bit and we see that He suffered immensely physically. Even now as He says, I Thirst. Second thing I want us to notice about this is that 
Jesus' physical agony, His thirst, is there to demonstrate, just in case we might think that this man has endured so much and with, without a complaint and with, that, that maybe he just really isn't human. But this demonstrates, in fact, that he is fully human. He's not just a spirit, nor is he, you know, if you watch the crazy stuff on History Channel sometimes, nor is he, he's not an alien or a uh, robot or cyborg or something, you know, that was dropped in. No, he was real human. I know this seems obvious to most of us, but one of the earliest heresies that attempted to creep into the church in the first century was Gnosticism. And among the things that they taught was they denied the humanity of Jesus. Yes, He was God, but because He was God, He couldn't be also man, so He must have been just a spirit. But the Scripture is very clear. Jesus was fully human. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and lived among us. Jesus lived among us as one of us. Yes, He had a virgin birth, a unique birth, a birth without a physical human father, and yet He was fully human with a mother and a natural human birth. He was raised in a human family. He had parents and He had siblings, half-brothers and sisters. Therefore, we assume He grew up in a normal life of any child. He grew up with chores to do and skinned knees and He he had dirty feet and got blisters and splinters and He learned to trade. The Bible tells us He was carpenter. The Scriptures tell us that He ate, He drank, He slept. He got hungry and tired And here on the cross we see He is thirsty. The humanity of Jesus is, while to us it seems obvious, it is an essential truth to our salvation. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Just over in the next chapter, it tells us, Hebrews chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The Old Testament is full of sacrifices that God mandated. Sacrifices of bulls and goats. But the purpose was never to remove sin completely. It was a, it was a temporary stay of judgment, as it were, and it was pointing to an ultimate sacrifice, but The sacrifice that is demanded for our sin is our life. And the substitute for our life cannot be a bull or a goat. It is another human life. It is either our life or another human. That is why Jesus had to be fully man to die in our place. And as we mentioned last week, fully God. So the sacrifice was infinite. And could cover all of us. It's essential to our salvation. But it's also essential to not only our salvation, but our confidence. To It's essential to Christ's current ministry. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ now 
resurrected is in heaven as man, and there he serves as our great high priest. Hebrews 4 says, verse 15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus' full humanity enables Him to be an effective intercessor, an effective priest for us because He knows how we feel. We can have confidence then that when we pray, Jesus hears us, He understands us, and He answers our prayers. Thirdly, I thirst teaches us that Jesus has is suffered physically. He is, he is fully human. And also what I see in this is I learn of priority. That God's will comes first. Don't miss the little phrase that John writes there that after this, Jesus, knowing all that was all was now finished, said. What it teaches us is that Jesus waited. It's not that He wasn't thirsty from the beginning. I think He probably was. But He waited to say, I'm thirsty. Why did He wait? It was a matter of priorities. He waited until everything that God the Father wanted done was done. It wasn't until after everything that needed to be done was done. It was after Forgiveness for His enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You remember He repeatedly prayed that for His persecutors. Salvation for the criminal. This day you'll be with Me in paradise. Care for His mother. And then, bearing our sin for those hours of darkness full force, as we said earlier, of God's wrath against sin poured out upon Him, being forsaken by the Father. Now when all of that is over, Jesus gives the first words addressing His physical suffering. I thirst. It, by the way, is not just what Jesus did on the cross. It's the way that He lived His life all the way through in total. When we look at His life, everything was about the Father's will, not about what He desired. That was the last prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet not My will, but Yours be done. But it wasn't just there. It was all the way through. And aren't we called to live that way as well? To put God's will first above ours? But I wonder how often we do that. I know in my own life and probably in yours, so often, often a majority of the time, God's eternal things, the things of God, are subjugated to our own selfish desires. William Temple once compared our, our world to a store window. Imagine a big storefront department store. You know, they, some are still around, a few still exist, and they have display windows. And in those windows, 
you'll go up and you'll see all this stuff. And he says, it's like a big display window in a store and, and uh, in the nighttime, some mischievous person snuck in and changed all the price tags. So that all the expensive things were priced very cheaply and all the cheap things were priced very expensively. And he said, our world is like that. His point was that the majority of people spend most of their time and most of their energy and most of their money and most of their focus on things that are relatively unimportant. And the things that truly matter, the truly important things, the things of God, are by and large, they are ignored. In these last moments on the cross, Jesus models for us how we are to prioritize our lives. The stuff of God comes first, and then if there's time, we'll get around to my needs and my desires. Hmm. John also notes of why Jesus said this. The biggest reason, if we want to look at why does Jesus say, I thirst, besides the fact that He's thirsty and He's suffering and He's fully human. But it says here, John says, to fulfill the Scriptures, He said, I thirst. John notes that Jesus is very aware of how everything that is happening here is fulfilling Scripture. And to put one final piece in place, Jesus calls attention to His thirst. One word, by the way, again in Greek. I'm thirsty. In that little word, what Jesus does, and I think if Perhaps it's just my little imagination that he does it with a little wink. (laughs) To fulfill what is in the Scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. And in so doing, he points us back to Psalm 22. We've been there a couple of times already in this series. And in Psalm 22, you find in verse 15, it says, And my tongue sticks to my jaws. Or the way the NIV translates it, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. That's the way we would normally say it. And if you've ever been really, really thirsty, you know how that works. Your tongue swells up and it's dry and it gets stuck to the sides of your mouth because you're just so thirsty. Psalm 22 says that. And now Jesus calls attention to it on the cross. I thirst. He also calls our attention in doing that to another psalm. Psalm 69 where it says, And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And that psalm takes us right back to our text, verse 29 in John 19. A jar full of sour wine stood there. What a coincidence. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. They got Jesus some sour wine. Now, a jar full of sour wine actually, we think, is might be just a really weird thing to have sitting around, but it wasn't. That was in this day, it was the it was next to water, the second most common drink in the land. It was the drink of the common man. It was a vinegar wine, highly diluted. It was cheap it was the cheapest drink you could get. And so it was likely there in in a jar like it would be for us in a canteen or a thermos. It was there for the soldiers to drink during the day. And when Jesus cries, I'm thirsty, somebody decides to get him a drink and that's handy. 
They take a sponge because he's up a little bit. They take a sponge and soak it and put it on a, on a hyssop reed just to get it up a couple of feet so he can grab hold of it and suck some moisture out of it. Jesus, unlike the drink that he refused before, now that there is no gall mixed with it, and now that he has already faced God's wrath for sin, Jesus wets his mouth. For he has just a few more words to say. You recall, by the way, I mentioned last week, these last four sayings on the cross all happened within a very short span of time. From just a few minutes to maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes at most probably that all these last four words happen. This last word that Jesus says we find in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His Spirit. The sixth word Jesus spoke from the cross, It is finished. Again, one single word in Greek, to Tetelestai. It is finished, but we wonder, what, what does He mean? What's finished? Jesus' enemies hoped that what He meant was, I'm finished. They've been trying to get rid of Jesus for a long time. They finally get Him crucified on a cross and they, they hope what He means by this is, I'm done. I'm, I'm finished. Satan, I think, believed that God's plan for the Messiah was finished. This was God's Messiah and He's on the cross. It's finished. God's plan is ruined and I've won. Score. I don't know Satan's mind, but I have a feeling that's what he was thinking. The disciples believe that Jesus has finished all of His plans, along with all of their dreams and all of their hopes, are gone. But of course, Jesus doesn't mean any of that. This isn't a statement of defeat, it's a statement of victory. It is finished. Again, the list of things that are wrapped up in this exceed our time to go through them. So let me very quickly and quicker than the last four, I'm going to name four. Jesus' pain and suffering is finished. His physical and spiritual pain is over. I believe this is what Jesus was was anticipating back in Luke chapter 12 as He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The baptism He's talking about is this baptism of judgment as He is on the cross. Suffering at the hands of men unjustly, but suffering deliberately at the hands of God in our place. Bearing the judgment of God, that's the baptism I think he's referring to. Interesting, what does he say? I, how great is my distress until it is, that word accomplished, same root word as Jesus when he says it is finished here in John 19. Until it is finished. What is finished? Jesus' sufferings. But I think it's more than that too. Jesus Work, His mission is completed. I mentioned earlier that Jesus had a laser-like focus on, on doing the Father's will. 
John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His purpose. That little word accomplish, same root word as finished. It is until it is finished. John chapter 5, verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. You get the pattern already. It's the same word. To finish. The very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus had a work to finish. One more, John chapter 17. Jesus praying to the Father the night before His death. I glorified You on earth having accomplished, having finished the work that You gave me to do. There on the cross, having finished the work of paying for sin, He has finished all of the work the Father gave Him to do. And Jesus is saying, it is done. He said all along here, as John has noted many times, He has said, I came to not just start a work, I came to finish it. And now Jesus says, it's done. It's done. Thirdly, God's salvation plan is accomplished. If you know your book of Revelation, when we all, when there's a scene unfolded there in heaven where the Lamb is there and it says, the Lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world. God's plan to redeem us, to save us through Jesus on the cross was in place before the world was ever founded. And from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture, right after our need for salvation showed up because of our ancestors' sin, God began to put out little little foreshadowings and pictures and prophecies that Jesus of, of what was going to happen. Beginning from Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve fell into sin as God speaks to Eve and He makes the promise of the the promised seed of the woman who had crushed Satan. And you go on through the, the covering of sin with the animal skins that were sacrificed as God provided clothing for Adam and Eve. The better sacrifice of Abel that comes up later. The sacrifice of the only and beloved son, Isaac and, and Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 onto the book of Exodus and the Passover lamb who was slain to, to, whose blood from the lamb saved and liberated God's people. Exodus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 16, the scapegoat who was released to carry the sins of the people away. We see it there. Jesus foreshadowed in the book of Ruth and in Leviticus 25, the kinsman redeemer who rescues us, His relatives, out of our distress. The suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, who takes our iniquities and our sins upon Him. Those are just a few of the scores of pictures throughout the Old Testament that are brought to realization to in Christ Jesus. The prophecies, over 300 prophecies of Jesus fulfilled in His life and death and resurrection over 24 over 20 I should say fulfilled just in this last 24 hours leading up through to and including his death 
going back to Psalm 22. Significant because it was written a thousand years before Jesus and yet there as we've talked about in prior weeks, it's like you're looking at the cross. The scene that is there is depicted in such detail. The last verse of that psalm says this, as it moves from the cross to those who will be saved throughout the world, and it ends with this, they shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. And that can be translated, He has finished it. God's plan of redemption was finished at the cross. One more thing that was finished. The debt of our sin was paid. That phrase, to telestai, it is finished, was also used to say very literally, paid in full. It was written on the receipts of the day. If you paid off your mortgage, they would write on there, to telestai, it is finished, paid in full. If you pay off your credit card bill, they would write, to telestai, paid in full. Nothing else needs to be or can be added to it. Jesus' payment on the cross is sufficient. We cannot and do not earn our salvation by anything we do. We can't. We can't add to it. It's paid in full. Nothing else needs to be, or as I said, can be added to it. And it was done once for all. This, this word, to telestai, it is finished, is a perfect tense of the verb. What that means is that it's a past action. It's, it's done in the past and affects that, but it has ongoing repercussions that extend into the future. And what it means is that Jesus, when He died on the cross, He died for every sin that had been committed and ever will be committed. It has ongoing effect. The book of Hebrews makes it Again, incredibly clear, Hebrews 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Two verses later, verse 12, it says again, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down because the sacrifice, the work was done. He had made one sacrifice for all time. All of that in those two little words. I thirst and it is finished and there is much more. But let me wrap it up with this. Jesus' word about being thirsty, I think, is intended by God or by John and by God to capture our attention and to go a little deeper. If you read through the book of John, you you might notice if you just take that word thirst and look back and what you'll find is that Jesus talks about being thirsty three times in the book of John. Three times, but every time it's when He talks about it, He talks about how He promises to meet that very need. John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Just over in John chapter 6, Jesus says, And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Over in John chapter 7, He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And it's 
either a very profound point or it is a tragic irony that Jesus, the one who makes those claims, is hanging on the cross and says, I thirst. I think it's a very profound point. You and I are born thirsty. The mothers here can probably attest to that. But just as we arrive in this world with a built-in physical thirst, we also have a spiritual thirst built in deep into our soul. We have a thirst for a connection to and a, a fellowship with the One who made us, with our Creator God. A relationship that was lost back in the Garden of Eden when our ancestors sinned and it was passed on down to each one of us. And that is the thirst of which Jesus speaks in those verses. Not a physical thirst, but a thirst of the soul. It's the thirst that David writes about in in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There is a thirst in us for relationship with Him. People try to fill and to quench that thirst in every variety of ways. Through money, through possessions, through human relationships, through pleasures, through adventures, through you know knowledge, through achievements, through drugs, through alcohol. It's an infinite list of things that people try, but ultimately none of them satisfy. As the ancient church father Augustine said in a prayer, he said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You, O God. The great French mathematician Blaise Pascal said it this way, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. I think John is intending to call us to see the connection That on the cross, Jesus endured all the suffering for our sin, including the drought of our spiritual thirst as the Father forsook the Son. In short, Jesus thirsted the greatest spiritual thirst so that you and I don't need to. Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, it is possible for any and every one of us to have our thirst for God fully satisfied. For us to have a relationship with Him. Even as Jesus went on to tell the woman at the well there in Samaria in John 4, where He said, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. For the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus promises to quench the thirst of life now and forevermore into eternal life. But the question is, will we drink from Jesus or are we trying to still chase other things to fill and to satisfy that thirst? For the word of the Scripture is very clear, nothing else ever will. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. 
Thank You that You loved us so much that You sent Jesus to die in our place and to finish the work. And to finish the work so that the real thirst at the core of our being can be met. Father, I have a feeling there's a bunch of us here that are trying to fill that thirst with a lot of the wrong stuff. We already know it doesn't work, but we keep trying. Maybe one more thing, maybe one more relationship, maybe one more uh, experience, and the thirst will be satisfied, but it never will be. May we hear what You've been saying through Your Word this morning, that there is satisfaction and it only comes through relationship with You. May we drink deeply of Jesus. May we trust Him as Savior. Then may we follow Him and love Him as Lord. And therein we will find ultimately a satiated, satisfied thirst. Thank You for all You've done for us in Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.